0: The Corinthian church seems to be a common foil nowadays. We hear various texts from those letters that Paul wrote and we say just, who would be that crazy? Who would be that out of control? Who would be that sideways in their understanding of who Jesus is, that all these behaviors would be in place and Paul would have to chastise them as the way he does in First Corinthians? Who would be that far off? Until we think about our own context, right? our own situation, our own milieu. And so as we come to this text in Corinthians, I want to remind us of the the backdrop, that it was indeed a town that was very prosperous, but with these exaggerated gaps between the rich and the poor. And to use Father Keener's language, a town with proverbial sexual looseness, a town where people would choose their ideologies to boost their power. Not that we know anything about that in the United States, but they had this way of simply choosing their politics or their religious fashion, whatever it might be, to boost and to build up their social interests. And so as Paul writes to this church, he's writing to those who on one side have the elites, who said, look, you know, we're educated. We actually believe that a person ought to be able to speak well. And you know, Paul's okay, but he's not very eloquent. Now, Apollos, on the other hand, that guy's got it going. And by the way, Apollos is more of our class, of our status. He's not one that, you know, actually works with his hands. And there's Paul, the hero, so to speak, of the blue-collar workers. This teacher who, in fact, was a tent maker and, in fact, not quite having the oratorial skills of his colleague Apollos. And as you've read the text many, many times, there's this tension now that exists as Paul writes to them to say, wake up, understand. Don't get caught up in these kind of class situations. Don't get caught up in one upping one another. Don't get caught up in all of the debates and all of the issues that will distract you from what matters. Paul says just before the text that, that we heard, let no one deceive himself, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you're Christ's, and Christ's is God's. That's why in the second half of the text that we heard, verses 3 through 7, and I'm going to paraphrase here, Paul tries to bring things in perspective. And again, this is my putting words in Paul's mouth. You arrogant elitists, what do you have that you did not receive? Rather than getting caught up in passing judgment of Paul or Paulus or anyone else, let the Lord be the judge of who is superior. Stick with the script of the wisdom of God. That's a pretty good set of principles for us today. A pretty helpful set of principles. But it precedes those verses, 3 through 7, with these two verses. And I want to zero in there. That's where I want us to pay attention. He describes that we, in fact, they, in fact, whether it's apostles of Christ, that they were both servants of Christ and trustworthy stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, to be a steward is one thing, but to be a servant is another. It's one thing to be a manager, it's another thing to be a slave. When I was wrapping up my illustrious career here at the seminary, and I say that tongue in cheek, by the way, I barely got out with any grades at all. But as I was graduating, I was about to be appointed. I, by the way, had served a two-point charge. I was a weekend warrior and would go up to Ohio every weekend, and, and I thought I was pretty experienced by this point. I had both a diploma and four years of experience as a pastor. And so I had assumed that when I gave my request to the district superintendent and to my bishop, that they would actually pay attention to what I requested. I said, now look, I I have four years, not three years. Most folks got done. Four years of seminary. I I took longer, but I'm well-educated, and I have these four years of experience. I would like to serve in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown. I would like to serve near the university where I used to usher the Ohio State football games. And I'd like to serve at a church that's a single point charge and that would have all these kinds of criteria. And when I gave that request, they politely smiled and sent me to southern Ohio down on the Ohio River. And my first response to that appointment and to every appointment to a parish thereafter, I said no. It's one thing to be a steward. It's another thing to be a slave. I did not trust the system enough. More importantly, I did not trust Jesus enough that he would care for me better than I could care for myself and that my preferences didn't even come close to measuring up to what God had in mind. As apostles, as those who are sent with the message, we in fact are called to not just sheer obedience, we are called to self-giving, generative love. And use the language of the True Face Ministry. Why don't we love God enough to trust God's faithfulness? Why do our fears, our preferences, whatever those excuses might be, why do they keep getting in the way of knowing that God is enough and God will always do well, even redeeming those things which may seem painful. Now, not only are we servants of Christ, but we are also to be trustworthy stewards. And that trustworthiness, that trustworthiness comes not because of our ability, but because of how well we care for what's been entrusted to us. In my discipline, it's called entrustment, That is, that we show ourselves worthy of being trusted. And then we have others then start to trust in us. And a steward is not simply a manager. A steward is not simply a trustee. But a steward is also one, as we see in the Gospels, one who can be entrepreneurial enough to multiply what's been entrusted to him or her. It isn't some kind of passive, let's go lock it in a vault, as we know from the parable but rather it is indeed managing it well so that it multiplies. And how much more would multiply than the mysteries of God? How much more would be unfathomable, would in fact be so um, amazing, uh, uh, so unbelievable and amazing to us that we would be caught up once again, over and over again, unable to adequately describe the very mysteries of God? That word mysteries is used 28 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 21 of those times. He understood just how unfathomable God's message and God's promise is. We are stewards of the mysteries of God, and certainly during Advent we're reminded that the primary mystery of God in this time especially is the virgin birth, life, and ministry ministry of the God-man Jesus Christ, his death on a cross, his bodily resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances, and his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now there's mystery. As I was preparing for today, I was reminded again how much wrangling has gone on over understanding the incarnation of Christ, this mystery of God. If you start in the course, those centuries prior to to the 4th century, we have Ignatius, we have Justin Martyr, we have Irenaeus, we have Hippolytus, we have Tertullian. All of them trying to reinforce the biblical mystery that God has come in the flesh and that Jesus is both God and man together. Things had gotten so bad by the 4th century, it took two councils to kind of straighten out again both the Council of Nicaea and the First Council of Constantinople, they had to put together this tension, this unbelievable kind of combination that God had in mind when he sent Jesus to come, to be with us. And although that was, I think, a very heroic and and powerful creed that we just yesterday cited, we are reminded again that by the the 5th century with the Council of Chalcedon, there was still wrangling over this idea of the mystery of God, this incarnation. And the debates didn't stop there. As you go into the Middle Ages and into the Protestant Reformation, as you go past Calvin and Arminius and Luther, as you even come into today, we start talking about this idea of deep incarnation. We continue to wrestle with this idea. What does it mean that God took on flesh? And as we wrestle with that mystery as we try to steward what God's entrusted to us, we continue to live in awe and wonder of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to say, down towards the end of this chapter, these mysteries of God, they have claims on us. You can't steward something without taking on some of the qualities and characteristics of what you're stewarding. It's impossible. We as human beings, when we take stewardship seriously, we start to take on some of the values of those things we're stewarding, whether possessions or anything else. And we find ourselves not just simply worshiping the God who became flesh as the incarnation describes it to us, but we also then start to become incarnational in our own lives. And we wrestle with how to live incarnationally. Andrew Roode is a a youth ministry professor at uh, Luther Seminary, and he reminded me in an article a while back that said, you know, so many times when we come to ministry and we try to live out this incarnational life, so many times we we start to to veer away from the center of it all. We, We start to redefine it for our situation. And so as a pastor, for example, we might say, you know, we want to be incarnational. We want to go hang out with people where they are and to try to understand their situation and, and somehow build bridges of communication and relationship so that we can be incarnational with them. And that's right and that is true. But the temptation is that we're so busy being like them, building relationship with them, trying to understand them, that we forget that that's only half of the story. It is not enough to have an incarnational life that builds bridges if then the next step does not happen. For unless we go from those relational bridges and cross over into into the mysteries of God, we've left them with a friend, but not a savior. Paul says to us, especially during this Advent season, you are servants of Christ. You are stewards, trustworthy, faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. And as we come to this season, as we come to this table, we see once again both the incarnation of Christ and the incarnational life married in us because it first was demonstrated in him.